This is uh, hopefully going to be mercifully short. I know we're we're running a little late anyway. Um, we're gonna we're gonna try to flow through this pretty quickly. Um, just a, a couple things. First of all, I'd love for this to be quasi interactive. Um, so if you have questions or whatever in the midst of any of this, feel free to raise your hands. Second thing, um, if I if I seem a little uh, cynical, just call me out on that in the middle of it, and and I'll try to course correct in the midst of this. Um, let's start off with uh, with a little bit of Jim Carrey, okay? Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. One more time, here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture Comedy. So Jim Carrey um, getting to the heart of the human condition in a lot of ways there. Um, in the church planning world, I think you can just replace, you know, Golden Globe winning actor with church planner. And that's sort of the zeitgeist that we, that we live in today in the church planning industrial complex. Okay. It is, it is rooted, um, in many ways in a theology of glory. Um, it is rooted in, which is rooted in the law, um, and it, and it kills uh, pastors, and it kills parishioners, and it kills churches. Um, through the law, I died to the law. Ver the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Um, the law of church planning killed me. A, a, a little bit of background before we jump in. Uh, my best friend Jonathan Adams and I planted an Anglican church in Atlanta um, about, what was it, honey? Five and a half years ago? Um, and even though, you know, we would say things like, oh, we don't, we, you know, oh, we're not out to become a big church. Like, Everything around us was like you. You gotta, you gotta go for it. You gotta get huge. You, you, there's all these things we're gonna talk about in here in a second. 
Um, and yet, as, as time went on in our church plant, it was that Tame Impala song that we, we opened up with. It seems like I'm only going backwards. It seems like I'm only going backwards. Um, the law of church planting killed me. What is the law of, of church planting? Um, what are the demands of the American church planting movement? Like I said, the law is it's, it's rooted in a theology of glory, just like all little L laws and just God's right, good, holy, and true law is. It does the same thing. If you do these things, you will be winning in every way as a church planner. You know, that's do this and live, okay? Do this and be successful in church planning. Um, a couple of definitions before we really jump in. I just want to make sure. And this is old news to many, many of you all. I see a lot of astute um, uh, theological thinkers in the area. But just to make sure we're on the same plane, a, a few quick definitions here. A theology of glory, what is that? What is the theology of the cross? And I lifted this directly from the Mockingbird. A lot of this directly from the, from the Mockingbird little definition page. So, David, I'm sorry, but I'm citing you right now. Um, theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things or else to defeat and move past them rather than looking them square in the face and accepting them. In particular, they acknowledge the cross but view it primarily as a means to an end, an unpleasant but necessary step on the way to good things in the future, especially the transformation of human potential in the here and now. Um, Gerhard Ferdy wrote in... Uh, in, in um, the book on being a theologian of the cross, which if you haven't read it, go, I think it's at the book table, buy it and read it. It'll, it'll turn your world upside down if you haven't read it yet. Um, somewhere in that book, he says, the cross is not transparent. And it's, it, he, he's not saying that to mean like it's, it, it's hiding something from you. What he says is it's not like, it's not that we look through the cross onto the bigger, greater, glor more glorious things that await us in the here and now, in, you know, in our life here on earth. No, he's saying it's like it, it all, it all ends. <laughs> That's where we must return to again and again, okay? So as Luther puts it, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering Therefore, he prefers work to suffering, glory to the cross, and strength to weakness. The, another way to describe it, the Christian life is climbing a diamond-encrusted ladder to heaven. Um, life is always up and to the right, is what the theologian of glory teaches. Uh, God speaks, acts, moves, works, and loves most profoundly in the glorious times of life. Um, the Christian life is right there along with Tim Tebow scoring touchdowns for Jesus over and over again, okay? And Jesus is at the top of the ladder glaring at you saying, you better climb faster. And only the strongest will survive. So it's a theology of control and power and pride. It's a theology of sin management. It's a theology for the strong. It's very Darwinian. It's a theology that does not take the human condition very seriously. It's a law-based theology, and it is the theology of the old Adam. That's what a theology of glory is. And it, uh, it kills. It's killing you and your job and in your family. It kills church planners, and it kills churches too. So, uh, so that's what a theology of glory is. What is a the theology of the cross? 
Christianity's defining symbol and the ultimate revelation of God's faithful loving kindness is Jesus Christ, God the Son, bleeding and dying on a Roman execution device for the sake of sinners. And, you know, we, we say, oh, we want to see God, right? We human beings, we want to see God, we want to know God. But a very big part of us doesn't want to know God like that. God bleeding and dying. So at the center, what is a, theolo- a theologian of the cross says, at the center of a religion of hope, joy, and love is an image representing death, failure, and pain. It's a, uh, it's, 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 it's a theology that takes the image of the cross and the event that took place on it extremely seriously, and it means viewing Christ's death on behalf of sinners, what in theology is called the atonement, as the climax and center of his work in the world. The image of death, of Jesus' death on the cross, reveals not just the mechanism of salvation, but also a fundamental, a fundamental, fundamental principle about life and about God. As Luther says, God always works under his opposite, and we see this in the crucifixion where God's victory was in his defeat, and life came about precisely through death. So a theology of the cross is, it's a bizarro. You remember the bizarro Superman? And the bizarro, you remember the bizarro episode of Seinfeld, right? It was on just like last week. I guess all of them were probably on last week at some point, right? Because it's in constant, you know, constant syndication. But the bizarro world where, you know, every, there's this parallel group of friends that Elaine gets, and they're completely opposite of, 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 uh, of, of her friends, you know, Jerry and, and Kramer and George. Um, a theology of the cross is a bizarro, Theology, everything gets turned upside down. It says that God is most reliably present, not in our strengths and our, or our successes or the things that we like best about ourselves. Rather, God is present and working in the world exactly in the place where you are falling apart, where you're discovering the limits of your power instead of its possibilities. It also means that God is always involved with people in situations exactly as they currently are instead of as they could be or might be or used to be. So it's a theology of humility and weakness. Something, two words that aren't very popular in church planning right now. Okay? It's a theology of sin atonement rather than sin management. It's a theology of mercy. And it's the theology of the new Adam. Jesus is at the, he's not at the top of the ladder saying, you better hurry up. He's at the end of our rope whispering, I love you. And it is finished. So rather than up and to the right, the Christian life in reality is actually down and to the right. It's down and to the right. It looks a lot like dying. God speaks, acts, moves, works, and loves most profoundly in the midst of suffering And this is true experientially, it's true biblically, it's true in church planning, it's true in your job, whatever that might be. It's true in your family, it's true in life. Okay, so we get the distinction now, I guess, right? And it's all over the place in scripture, you know, truly, truly I say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. We don't want you to be unaware, brother, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And last, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the theology of glory. And that's where um, if you plant a church, I mean, I'm sorry, that's a theology of the cross. And after you church planning has killed you or your job, whatever it may be, has killed you, um, that's where you will find yourself. And the dying is, the dying sucks. Uh, but resurrection life is pretty sweet at the same time. Okay. So what are the, what are the little L laws? What are the laws of planting churches um, that killed me? And then what did resurrection life look like on the tail end of those things regarding church planning? That, that's what I want to, that's where we want to, I want to park for a little bit, okay? So the first church planting law that killed me is the co-opting of the values and language of Silicon Valley by the church planting industrial complex. Do y'all know what I'm talking about here? The co-opting of the values and language of Silicon Valley by the church planting industrial complex killed me. It killed me. These are things like you have to be an innovator. If you're going to plant a church, you have to be an innovator. We got, pe- you know, we got people, especially millennials, leaving the churches in droves. They're not coming back. So you, church planner, you have to innovate. You've got to innovate, innovate, innovate in order to get these millennials back in the pews. And that sounded good. Yeah, let's go, let's go get them, right? Let's go get the, those pesky millennials and get them back in the pews um, until I realized that really what's been given to me as far as the way what the pastoral tasks are and what um, corporate worship should look like and in small orthodox manner, specifically for us in Anglican manner, there's really nothing to innovate there. There's nothing to innovate there. Um, yes, new persuasive words that PZ talks about all the time, absolutely yes. Um, ways to express that that can be heard by a certain generation, absolutely. But when I'm asked to, well, let's not talk, let's not talk about, let's not confess our sins and then let's not offer absolution to people. Let's move beyond um, merely preaching Jesus crucified for sinners every week. Um, we got to innovate that. We got to change that around. And I, and I quickly discovered I, I can't do that. I can't. I can't do that. And I died. I died. Or how about this one that we hear a lot in Silicon Valley, um, in the tech world in general? You're going to change the world. It, which is an amazing. You really. You hear. You know. You hear. Do, do y'all watch the show Silicon Valley on HBO? Um, you know. It's. <laughs> 
it's with, with, with this widget or with, with this new technology or with this new app, you're going to change the world. There's an article in the New York Times last week actually about how uh, you know, the new work environments are actually just churning people out. But at the same time, while you're in the job, before they fire you, it's almost like a cult-like atmosphere. Um, and you get people hyped up on your company. You get the employees hyped up on your company because we're going to change the world with this new dating app, you know. <laughs> That's slightly different from Tinder, but pretty much the same thing. But we're going to change the world. Um, that is rampant in, in the church planning world. You're going to change your city for Christ. Okay? And we're going to talk about this in, 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 in more in depth later. But um, I died when I came to realize that my little church isn't even a blip on the radar in my city. I can't change the world. And I died. Um, within, within, uh, within the tech world, there's, there's this cult of the entrepreneur, right? The, 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 the cult of the founder, um, the cult of the leader. Um, by the way, in our society, I heard somebody say recently, it was so true, you know, you've got the, 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 the ancient role of, the, of prophets, priests, and kings who were sort of the leaders in society. Well, the, the new prophets are stand-up comedians. They're the truth-tellers, right? The new priests are celebrity chefs. They're the ones who are, who are feeding the people. And the new kings are tech, tech entrepreneurs. They're CEOs. Those are the new kings, okay? When I discovered that I'm actually a pretty crappy leader as leader has been defined in our, in our society, and I'm not a CEO, I, I, I can't do it, um, I died. It killed me. It killed me. We had, um, it, early in our church's phase, we had some pretty powerful business guys who were, who were a part of our, were a part of our church. And, <laughs> and they're like, we need to get a strategic plan together, so let's meet together, and we're going to take you through our, and they're all consultants, of course. If you're a consultant, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to offend consultants. But they're like, we're, we're gonna, we need a strategic plan for this church. And we went through this, like, six-month process for these guys, and it, it ended up being the biggest disaster of my life. I ended up hating them. They hated Jonathan and me. I mean, it was, it was it, so I realized I'm not, a, I'm not CEO material, Okay. <laughs> And I, and I died. And a lot of this is rooted in what Eugene Peterson calls the running a church or the shopkeeper model of church. And, he, he, and, and listen to this quote, it's very powerful. He says, the pastors of America have metamorphosized into a company of shopkeepers and the shops they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from the competitors down the street, how to package the goods so that customers will lay out more money. Some of, their, some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract lots of customers. They pull in great sums of money, develop splendid reputations, yet it is still shopkeeping, religious shopkeeping, to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs. While asleep, they dream of the kind of success that will get the attention of journalists. Again, a theologian of glory. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and he does his work in them and on them. 
In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called a pastor and is given a, a designated responsibility in the community. The pastor's responsibility is to keep the communities attentive toward God and to care for his people's souls. And this responsibility, it is this responsibility that is being abandoned in spades. So entrepreneurial church planting killed me. I could not measure up to its demands, and I died. And when I died, I gave up. I gave up. And that's when resurrection actually started to happen. It usually happens like that in all of life, right? Giving up is a blessed thing in a lot of ways. So I gave up, and God raised me back to life, and he helped me stop caring about all the things that the entrepreneurial church planning movement told me to care about. Like any good reformer, like Cramner and, and, and all the rest of the English reformers, just, just talking about affections have to be a place with better affections, right? Old affections that did not satisfy have to be replaced with new and better ones, and that's what God did for me. Um, it means some really cool things started happening in my church when I stopped caring about my church growing. When I stopped trying to grow a church, when I stopped caring about measurable goals and simply started to do joyfully what God has called me to do, which is proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel through word and sacrament, care for the souls of my people, and care for the souls in my parish, the geographical area that we're in. It means finally being able, especially when there's so much work to do and the stress is so high that you can, like Eugene Peterson says he did, you can finally lay down on your couch in your office, kick back and read a novel. And be in a place where that's okay. That's not a waste of time. It means God has his way with you and with your church or with your family or whatever it is when you actually give up. So what else killed me? So the, the, the you know, Silicon Valley model of church planning killed me. Second thing that killed me, I died when people started leaving our church because we talked about Jesus' mercy too much. Uh, after a year and a half of, of, of um, talking about Jesus a whole lot and his life shed blood, death, and resurrection for sinners, and yes, proclaiming his law and then proclaiming his gospel, his good news, and just leaving it at that, not going back to the law after we proclaimed the gospel, we started getting a lot, you know, I started, hey, hey um, Kurt, we need to talk. And you know what's coming after it. <laughs> After that statement, right? It's never good. Um, so we got to, we, we need some deeper teaching. Um, your people are starving. And I actually replied to that one. Actually, I put the bread in your hand and the cup to your mouth every week, so you're not starving. Probably shouldn't have said that to that guy, but... Um, <laughs> um, this this was this one was funny. Your sermons are too short. And I'm like, do you want do you want me to stand up there? I'll go for forty five minutes. I promise you, if you want me to. But I, you don't want me to do that. But you know, at least ninety five percent of the people in the world they'd 
<laughs> but we actually got, your sermons are too short. We got enough about grace, you need to tell me how to grow in holiness. Why don't you talk about sanctification at all? We've got a lot of this stuff. And people left our church because of it. Friends left our church because of it. Um, people who wrote big checks left our church because of it. Robert Capon really nails the problem in that way that he likes to do. That's such a cool way. He says, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because it only works for losers and nobody wants to stand in their line. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. Um, I think people leaving our church was such a big fear of mine and it killed me in such a devastating way and it still does because I'm an approval junkie and I really want people to like me. That's part of it. That's a big part of it actually. Um, It's also because a whole lot of who I am identity-wise, ontologically, unfortunately, is really wrapped up in this, this church that Jonathan and I started. <laughs> you know? So it's like when somebody, when somebody rejects that, it, almost, it feels like they're rejecting me. You know, it's a very, very, it's important. Sh- it ought not to be that way. Um, I found relief, though, and I, it killed me. It killed me. And I found relief. I was raised to new life when God brought me to the point of really accepting the fact that we're a church for losers and sinners. We're a church. We're not a church for the strong. We're a church for the weak. Um, and we're a church for not, we're not a church for hypothetical sinners. We're a church for real sinners, actual sinners who need mercy from their God. A buddy of mine, Tal Prince, who's out of Birmingham, um, you know, we were talking about this and I said, you know, we're not, a, we're not a hotel for saints, we're a hospital for sinners. He goes, well, let me correct you on that. He said, um, churches, you're right, churches are not hotels for saints, all right? They're not country clubs for saints. And they're actually not hospitals for sinners either. What they are is hospices for sinners. They're places where people can come and learn to die and then learn what resurrection life is on the tail end of that. Okay. So here's what resurrection life looked like for me in this area. Um, I learned what it means finally to, to be given thick skin and a tender heart. Sometimes I ask God for that a lot. Give me thick skin and a tender heart, you know, to where when people can say, people come and say to me, you know, I know this is not the church that I want. I can say, I understand that here. Let me find one in our area that can give you what you need and do that without anger, (laughs) you know, do that with a great deal of, of, of peace and love for that person rather than like, screw you, you know, um, a resurrected dead pastor can learn to disappoint people with grace and humility, in other words. A resurrected dead pastor can come to terms with the fact that grace-centered word and sacrament, law and gospel, confession and absolution, Anglican churches are probably not going to grow very big at all. That's the reality of the situation. And 
dying and coming to new life. I've come to terms with being okay with being a small church. I really have. A small church for losers and sinners. Um, in, in a funny way, a lot of people have surrounded me and, 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 and Jonathan and helped us in this. And, and one guy, he's a, he's a pastor up in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, he, he's been at it for like 25 years and his church is not big at all. Um, but he, he hasn't bailed and he just kept on doing it. He, he, says, he says, Kurt, here's what you do. You're going to meet somebody and you're, you're going to tell them what you do. And they're going to say, the first thing that they're going to say is, uh, how, many, how many people go to your church? Um, and he says, here's what you tell them. You, you say, oh, my church is huge. And then they're going to say, oh, no, no, seriously, how many, how many people go to your church? And then you're going to look them in the eye and you're going to say, listen to me, my church is huge. And he says, they won't ask you anymore. <laughs> and I actually have done that a couple of times and it, and it worked. <laughs> so, oh, how many, you know, in the south, how many y'all running? And, and you say, oh, my church is huge. <laughs> and they don't, oh, okay. And then they, you know, well, seriously, how many? No, my church is huge. And then they don't ask anymore. It's a nice little technique. That, that's my only bit of advice maybe for this, for this whole talk, okay? Um, Second thing that happened, we were, several years ago, um, the Mockingbird Fall Conference was in Charlottesville, and I was there, and this is right when we started getting this, this sort of, uh, this kind of exit from our church of a lot of the people that started, that helped us start the church, because of, because of teaching on, you know, teaching grace, preaching about Jesus a lot, instead of about you a lot. Um, and, and I knew Paul had experienced, Paul's all had experienced a lot of things. And, uh, and, and so I said, Paul, help me with this. And so Paul said, okay, yes, let's, let's go sit down. And I told him what's going on in, in his way. He goes, Kurt, dear Kurt, listen to me. You will never convince them. And, I, and I'm thinking at that point, thanks a lot, Paul. <laughs> you know, thanks for the encouragement, man. He goes, you will never convince them to so stop trying. And he subsequently said, here's what's going to happen. Either you are going to leave or they are going to leave. If you leave, within six months they will leave because they felt bad that they ran the pastor off. Okay? He says, if they leave, what will happen is one day you will get a letter. And when the job is gone or the money is gone or the kids that are off the rails, you will get a letter. And the letter won't be like, you were right, I was wrong. The letter will be, please help me. And those words alone, um, that was Paul taking my hand off the eject lever, okay? <laughs> and gently saying, you're going you're gonna to be okay. You're going to be okay. Third thing, I died when I was forced to realize that building God's kingdom is not my responsibility. I died when I was forced to realize that building God's kingdom is not my responsibility. We church planners were called to be kingdom builders, right? Right? <laughs> um, we're called to do radical things for the gospel and build God's kingdom here on earth. I mean, the local church is how he builds his kingdom after all, and it's up to us church planners and the people who are planning our churches with us to build God's kingdom. Um, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. 
And the old Adam loves this. You know, even though I would deny that on the outset, the old Adam eats this up and he loves a good challenge. He loves a good challenge. And so, again, this goes back to the whole change your city, you know, the, the change your city expectation. Um, change your city for Jesus kind of stuff. And even though my old Adam loved it, it was a really, really heavy weight to carry around, isn't it? How radical is radical enough, you know? Do I really have to sell my house and car and, <laughs> you know, give it to the poor? Do I, really, do I really have to do all this crazy stuff in order to, for my city to change and to build God's kingdom? Um, and I died because my church did not change Atlanta at all. My church didn't change Atlanta, not even close. In a lot of very empirically verifiable ways, Atlanta is a worse place now than it was than when our church started five years ago. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the reality of the situation, y'all. And that killed me. That killed me. Um, I was raised to new life, though, when I came to realize that God's kingdom is a gift, God's kingdom is not something that I am called to build. It's not something that I can build. God's kingdom is something that is given to you and me. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's kingdom is a gift. Um, I, I, of all things, a church of Scotland pastor helped me see this. Uh, I, was at a, I was at this thing and he was speaking. He told the story of uh, he's got his little, he's got his um, parsonage there by his church in, 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 in Scotland. And there's, he's got this, uh, this multi-year project going on that every Saturday, he's building a little wall around his house, okay? He's building a little two-foot-high, like, stone wall around his, his, uh, the, the rectory there, as it were. And, and every Saturday, he'll get up, and they'll have breakfast with his family, and then he'll, all right, I'm going to go work on the wall. And his five-year-old son, at the time when he was telling us, his five-year-old son would say, Daddy, I'm going to help you build the wall. And he said, yeah, come on out. And they'd go out, and, you know, his son would carry a few rocks for him. But he said inevitably it ended up, he's throwing more rocks. You know, he's throwing more stones than, than he's carrying, and he's playing in the dirt and just kind of screwing around the whole time. While, you know, my friend who's the pastor, he's, he's, he's actually, you know, getting some work done. And the, but his son's there with him. And they come in for lunch, and he said every time, it's, Mommy, Mommy, look what I did. And of course, he doesn't bride his son at that point and chew him out and say, you little lazy jerk. I was the one who did all the work. You were screwing around the whole time. He says, no. I say, son, I'm, 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 so, happy, I'm so happy to be building this wall with you. But his point was this, and he says, this, he says, the father builds the wall. The father builds the kingdom. And we get to be with dad as he builds his kingdom in our midst. And that killed me and brought me back to life at the same time that killed me and brought me back to life at the same time I and it was at that point learning to let go of control that I never actually had in the first place learning that I cannot change the world and that it's not my job to change the world it's God's job to change the world learning that I can go through every church growth strategy ever devised and it still won't do a thing as far as making my city a better place that's what Jesus does in our midst 
It's what he does in our midst. It's learning that people can indeed change, but I cannot change them. It's learning that people are transformed into kingdom-loving people, not through coercive power, but through love. It's learning that I'm merely a herald who has been given, given a message to proclaim. The message that God's kingdom is here, and it's on its way, and it's all because of Jesus and his mercy and love toward us. Last thing, ultimately it came down to this. I died when I realized that I was not God. And I know that sounds silly. But I died when I realized that I was not, in fact, God. And I'm being raised to new life as merely a human creature who is loved by his creator. Somebody asked Tim Keller what his top advice to young church planners was, and he said this, you're not Jesus, so quit trying to be. And that's really good advice. And of course, you know, in, in my mind, are you God? Well, no, of course I'm not God. But at the same time, isn't, hasn't that, our, that been our problem since the garden? I don't want to be a creature. I want to be divine. I want to take control. I want to be the good entrepreneur and CEO and leader. I want to knock, people, knock people's socks off with my preaching. I want to change my city and I want to change the world. I want to be God. And that's a big problem. Um, you know who's doing a really good job at showing people that he's not in fact God is, of, of all things, Pope Francis. Um, there, was a, there was a service, I'm, you know, I'm not a Catholic, so I don't know exactly what the service was. There, there was some service there in St. Peter's and it was all cardinals and the Pope um, and, and, and some priests in the audience. And what would happen was at a certain point in the service, all, the Pope and all the cardinals would go into the confessional booths as, as confessors. And then all the priests would go in as penitents and confess their sins to, uh, you know, to the cardinals and to the Pope and, and then on their merry way. Um, and the Pope sort of freaked everybody out because at that t- point when he was supposed to go in to be a confessor to hear the penitent, the penitent priests confess their sins, he actually waits for a second and he lets the cardinals go in first and he went in first as the first penitent rather than the first confessor and he confesses his sins and then he turns around and he goes back to his special confessional booth to hear the sins of everybody else and I thought okay that's a guy who realizes that he is a creature merely a creature loved by his creator um and by the way look what look what's happening there's a new conversation going on as far as the church in general and the Roman Catholic Church specifically and a lot of it is because there's we got a pope who knows he's not God we've got a pope who knows he's not God So that death and resurrection meant that as, as a church planning priest, I'm free to simply be a creature who's loved by his creator. It means that even though I'm a pastor, I'm also free to be a human being. I'm learning that power is not my game, whether that be ecclesiastical or political power. I'm learning that the death I ultimately must die is a death of coming to terms with the fact that there's nothing left for me to do, only resurrection life to be lived. 
It's the death that comes with realizing that Jesus really has taken care of everything. He really, and, and, and it's, it's not my responsibility anymore other than to proclaim it and herald it through the structures that I've been given. Okay, so question for y'all. Who is either actively in the process of planning a church either as a church planning pastor or as a, a, a parishioner, launch team member, things like that. Raise your hand. Okay, so not too many. Okay, a few of y'all, a couple of y'all. <laughs> you got to, yeah, yeah, but it's, it, it's, you are starting something. You're a founder, Matthew. <laughs> you're, you're a CEO. <laughs> you can do it, man. I want to, uh, let's open it up for questions. Um, and it's not you ask me a question and I answer it because I'm the expert. It's, I, I'd really like to start a dialogue here. Any questions from, from what was said? Yeah, Matthew. No, absolutely. It, it, a, lot of, a lot of the church planning industrial complex is very theoretical. You know, there are, there are meta theories as far as if you, you know, if you do these big picture things, success will come to you. And there's not a whole lot of talk of like, when is, the, when is the guy who's been struggling with his sexual sin his whole life comes and he's utterly broken um, and, and he, needs, he, he needs help? What does that look like? <laughs> in the context of, of, you know, a new and messy church. How do, you, how do you love that guy? And how does that guy love you back? And, and how do you preach Jesus to each other in the midst of that? Um, yeah, I think it absolutely personalized it. And I think when you take your mind off, how do I make this church as big as I can? When you finally die to that, um, then you can start, start asking the question, how can I love that person? as he or she is, not as he or she should be, right? And maybe even a more pertinent question, how can I tell that person about Jesus' love for him as he or she is, not as he or she should be, right? Um, and I think that is, you know, that, that also goes back to Peterson's, you know, running a church versus caring for souls, you know? When I've died to any of the dreams that I had for my church, maybe I can actually start caring for my own soul, <laughs> and for my people's souls as well, rather than how do I build this big structure up in order to please myself and maybe hopefully please God too, you know. Thank you for that. Any other questions?
another little pocket of, of, of the megachurch, right? I mean, Atlanta, Orange County, and then like the whole state of Texas, right? That's like, <laughs> okay, so you're like, you're in the thick of it. Um, I, th- I think for us, I think we, uh, we weren't trying to do a bait and switch with anybody. I don't think we were probably clear enough with our, are you, are you, let me, are you coming from the perspective of like, you're the pastor of the, uh, okay. From my perspective, I think, I think truly knowing and understanding and treating your pastor like a human being, you know, who's probably, who's probably also an approval junkie. <laughs> Um, and who really, really badly wants people to like him. That's why he loves standing up in front of people every week. <laughs> Maybe they'll like me. Maybe they'll compliment me. You know. Um, um, so I think, yeah, I think allowing him or her to be a human being, okay? And honestly, I think setting the bar kind of low for like, <laughs> you know, he, he or she is not Superman or Superwoman, um, and rare is rare is the uh, rare is the pastor that can grow a big church and so setting the bar low howie do you want to answer that question this is howie back here howie's actually a deacon in in the anglican church and he's at our church the village church at bindings and howie's actually an extremely encouraging friend and parishioner so how how would you how would you answer that question That would be the imputation that Paul talks about all the time too, right? Yeah. I think one other way to answer your question and how he demonstrates this to me all the time is um, how he's just my friend. I mean, it's, it, it's not like how he, how he doesn't put me on a pedestal because I'm a pastor. Um, 
you know, how he invites me to go do trivia with him at Bella's Pizza and Bar every Wednesday night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, how he's my friend. And, and of course, that, you know, that, it, in some cases, that can get difficult. Um, but, he, but he treats me like a human being. Not like a god or not like a, you know, or like a, he doesn't treat me like a scumbag either, you know. If, if, if my sermon did suck, which it often does, he doesn't tell me. <laughs> you know, he treats me like a human being and he treats me like a friend. And I think, yeah, I think that might be what a lot of what we pastors need, you know. Eric, did you have something? No, or was, Nick, did you raise your hand? Somebody raised their hand right over here. Oh, it was, okay, go ahead. Self-funding or self-sustaining, yeah. Um, And so that means you need to get critical mass in order to get enough funding so that you can have a church. Well, that so that almost inevitably leads you down the road of theology. It has to. It has to. Yeah. You know R.J. Heyman. R.J. Heyman says this. He goes, "Here's you know, there's two, there's two, there's two tails in every church plant. It's like the fundraising pitch, and then reality, <laughs> right? And the fundraising pitch is always it's based on a th- because yeah, it's based on a theology. It has to be. It has to be." Absolutely, especially in the early days, man. Yeah, yeah. You, and that's the you know, don't hate the play, I hate the game. I mean, that, <laughs> that's like a, <laughs> you got. That's a great, yeah, and one of, one of our, so, you know, we're part of an Anglican diocese, but we're also part of a church planning, uh, like a, like a church planning network in Atlanta, and one of the guys came into the story, he's like, I moved to a new city, and I thought just like, 
by my personality, I just set up shop and just start, just, just start having church services. And he says, uh, you know, I moved and I met a few people and I, and I, and I rented this space and, and literally no one showed up. Like nobody. His launch Sunday, nobody, literally no one showed up. He's like, all right, well, we're going to start this over and we're going to try it again. And like two weeks later, nobody showed up. <laughs> so he died like pretty quick on the front end, I think. <laughs> Birthday party for yourself. That's, that's good. And, and it, it's something I haven't told y'all. I wasn't going to get into this. But it, so basically the way, like after, we had a, we had a really slick fundraising uh, packet, by the way, Eric. You can steal it from us if you want to. It's, it's good, man. It is, it is, man, it is up and to the right. Um, so when we got out of that, like, and look, I don't want to bait and switch people, right? But, but at the same time, people do want to see, like, if, if I, like, put, pump some resources into this, are these guys, like, <laughs> are these guys total jokers who are just going to run this thing to the ground? Or are they going to actually, you know, and the answer is probably yes, uh, but give us money anyway. Um, I got to a point where for me, psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, the only way for me to carry forward was for me to go get a job. So, and not that church planning is not a job. So about a year and a half ago, I, I intentionally went into a bivocational pastoral situation. Um, I work, a, I work a day job, and I do parish work part-time now, and I could not be happier about it. Um, I could not be happier about it. I don't think that's mandated. I don't think that's like everybody has to do that. I think it's definitely modeled in church history, but it's not mandated in Scripture or in church history. But just for me, the angst that I was feeling and the, the, the expectations that people were putting on me in my church and what I was called to be as a pastor, I had to say, I can't do what you're telling me you need me to do. I can't do it. Um, so I went and I got a job. I got a job. And that has freed me to be the pastor that God has called me to be. Um, again, not for everybody at all. That's probably the exception rather than the rule. But that's, that's where I found myself. And, I'm, and it's... And that was a death too, by the way. Holy moly, was that a death? Because in a sense, that's like, that's in the church planning world, that's kind of admitting failure. <laughs> like ultimately, I had to go to get a job. Okay, um, I wouldn't have it any other any other way though. Yeah, man. No, no, we, I mean, we ask for money every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, um, you know, and we do it in a way that's very freeing. You know, it's New Testament giving is, 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 is generous, cheerful, and without compulsion, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, we still take a collection, uh, you know. 
Oh, oh, God, yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't, we haven't, we're still renting space. Yeah, we haven't done any of that. <laughs> Christ have mercy, you know. Um, no, those aren't, those aren't bad things at all. I'm just saying for me and where I was, once again, emotionally and spiritually, like I, I had, it, it was really, a, it was a pastoral crisis for me. It was a pastoral crisis for me to say, what you're telling me you need, I, that's not me. That's not my calling. That's not what I'm called to do. Um, so going and getting a job is actually enabled to me to be who I'm called to be as a pastor. You know, so that's, you know, nothing wrong with, you need money. Ministry needs money. It does. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the reality of the situation. But I'm just saying that, that for me was much more emotional and psychological rather than like raising money is evil. Does that make sense? Any other questions or comments? Guys, thank you so much. It's, we're over time anyway, so have a lovely evening. We'll see y'all for the party at 7. <laughs>